Very welcome to Cornerstone. If you're visiting with us, please do stick around after for some tea and coffee. This morning we have John Nixon um, speaking from Psalm 27. So if you'd like to follow along in the screen behind or if you have your own Bible with you, this is God's Word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with joy, with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray before John comes to speak. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we gather once more to worship you. I pray that we would come here now with hearts afresh, open and expectant to hear from you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this place. God, that our eyes would be lifted to you, seated upon the throne, sovereign over everything. That, Lord, though the world be shaken around us, Help us as your children and as followers of Jesus to be found on the solid rock that is Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. God, the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray that over anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not yet know you as Savior, that God, that your gospel would be proclaimed, that lives would be given to you, Father. We just pray now, Lord, for John as he comes to speak. Father, anoint him with your spirit. Help him to glorify your name through what he has prepared. We pray that over all the leaders teaching in the kids' spaces, Father, that the name of Jesus would be lifted high here this morning. And God, just as we've read, help us to find our refuge in you. Lord, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, Father, 
Help us to remain on mission. Keep our eyes fixed on the Great Commission, Lord. Help us to make disciples. Lord, do that by strengthening us and making us bold through your Spirit and equipping us with your Word, Father. So just be with us now. Let your name be glorified alone here today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's really great to have the privilege of speaking to you today on this absolutely wonderful psalm. Um, I just want to thank Marcus. Um, I, I do have in my notes and the band, but it was just Marcus this morning. So uh, thank you to Marcus for leading us so uh, well in worship this morning. It was just wonderful to proclaim some of the truths of God's word together in worship and praise his name. And thanks to Steph for reading the passage and praying for us as we, before we engage uh, with, with God's word this morning. Now, I think I'm safe in saying that we all, to some extent, struggle with, with fear. Uh, I remember as a young cub being able to climb up to the top of a three-story building on a ladder to clear guttering without it phasing me one bit. Um, and also, uh, when on youth camp, being able to go up to the top of a, a high ropes course uh, and swing between the poles and, and no fear whatsoever coming my way. But I also remember... Uh, coming back to youth camp in my mid-twenties and going on the same high ropes course and something had changed in the meantime. I remember my legs started to shake an awful lot um, and for some reason uh, that didn't seem so natural being up that high anymore. Um, I realized that it wasn't a natural thing to be there. Um, I'm sure an awful lot of you could identify with this fear and in my opinion it's a completely rational one. Um, there are other times in my life, however, whenever I have felt the crippling weight of fear. Um, probably the one that has had the most significant impact on my life has been my fear of public speaking as I stand up here today. <laughs> this fear has always been with me, um, and I think it comes from the fact that I struggle to think on my feet when everyone's eyes are looking at me. I've always been much more confident in group settings or being the one behind the person who's doing the speaking. This fear at times has absolutely crippled me and brought me to a point where I have absolutely froze. Um, in my previous work life, I used to work for M&S and at times I would have to deliver seminars. And I remember at one time I was delivering a seminar to our regional team and I stepped up to the podium, a bit like I am today, and just felt absolutely paralyzed. I stood in silence, not moving at all for what felt like an absolute eternity. And then when I did, all I could do was manage to speak and ask somebody to get me a glass of water to try and gain some sort of composure back. It was an extremely awkward moment, and for everyone in that room, it was extremely awkward as well. I eventually managed to muddle through uh, the seminar, but that instance really left a scar for me and has meant that ever since that point, I've seriously struggled with the fear of public speaking. Now, in the grand scheme of things, these two fears of mine peel really into insignificance compared to some of the very real fears, anxieties, and heartaches that we all have in our lives. We will all come across very serious, traumatic situations in our lives that will cause us to fear. If you're not fearful now, the chances are you will know someone who is, and it's only a matter of time before we will have to confront fear ourselves. In this passage, there are a few explanations as to what David was writing this psalm in response to. Some believe it to be written uh, whenever David is fleeing from King Saul. David had been anointed by God to become king 
And as a result of God's blessing being removed from Saul, the current king, Saul responds with jealous anger and pursues David with the aim of killing him and ousting him. Other scholars believe it to be written at the time when David's son Absalom led an uprising against him. John described this scenario a few weeks back. Um, it would force David to flee from Jerusalem in order to save his own life. Either way, David finds himself betrayed, on the run, and in absolute fear for his life. And it is likely that it is within one of these two contexts that he writes Psalm 27. Psalm is a wonderful display of how David responds to the very real and crushing fear and anxiety he is facing that could so, so easily overwhelm him. Psalm doesn't shy away from the severity of this situation and doesn't make light of it at all. Instead, the psalm shows us the importance of a true understanding of who God is and how much we can rely on him to give us the strength and endurance to run the race to which we are called. As we journey through the psalm, I will be highlighting three ways in which David relates to God. And I just want to caveat that with, as I was going through this, uh, I really felt God draw me towards the first point. So I'm going to spend a lot more time in the first point. So don't worry, when I finish the first point, I won't be doing the same length of time in the second and third point. Um, but I just want to dwell in that point um, as much as I can. The first point will be David uh, has confidence in God. Uh, secondly, we'll be moving into how David desires, to, uh, desires God and seeks his face. And thirdly and finally, we'll be talking about God, how, God, how David waits for God. And with that said, let's dig into the text here, starting in verses 1 to 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And though an, an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David declares at the start of the psalm that God is his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. These are three powerful illustrations that highlight key characteristics of God. When we think of light, it doesn't take long to grasp its purpose. With David's upbringing as a shepherd, he would be all too aware of its purposes as well. Light for him, as he was tending to his sheep, would be a means of security. It warded off predators at night. As a soldier, um, David would have been aware that sometimes enemies would tend to creep up at you uh, under the cover of darkness as their disguise, and light was a way of illuminating this threat. And whilst we all walk on paths at nighttime, light will stop us from stumbling, won't it? It'll stop us from stumbling over stones or, or obstacles. The reality is that some of the dangers we perceive to be in the darkness are real and dangerous. However, it is important to be aware that quite often the perceived dangers that we think are out there, when we shine a light on them, they fade into insignificance. Light is not just a way of overcoming fear, it is also the way to properly understand the reality of the world around us. God's light shines in a way that should inform our worldview. It helps us to better understand and interpret what is happening in this world and in our lives. It is interesting to note here that this is the only, uh, one and only time in the Old Testament that God is actually described as light. In other references, God is described as creating light giving light or sh and, and shining light, but nowhere else is he described as being light. 
However, if we fast forward to the New Testament, God is described as light in many passages, including 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. More significant, however, is the knowledge that Jesus himself is light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is another reminder to us that the Father and Son are one, that Jesus is our light, the very radiance of God. And for that reason, we can be confident in following Christ, knowing that he has endured the most horrendous of deaths on our behalf and has been raised to life again. For this reason, we can be certain of our salvation if we are trusting in him. Christ has paid the price for our sinful lives and has washed us white as snow. He is our stronghold and our source of strength. He is our light, our salvation, and our stronghold. And we can look at these three descriptions that David uses in verse 1 like a cord that has three strands. When a rope has three strands braided together, it will be strong, robust, and ready for use. He is our light, our salvation, and our stronghold. I was reading my devotional yesterday morning, and it brought me to Philippians 2, specifically verses 14 to 16, which say the following, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It was a reminder to me that we have been so graciously and lovingly adopted into the family of God, that we are in fact grafted to Christ and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, so much so that his light that we have been talking about lives within us, dwells within us, a gift that we could never earn and do not deserve. Paul in these verses is not only reminding the Philippians of this truth, but he's also commissioning them. God had placed the Philippians in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation and charged them to shine as lights within that world. And we must be, do the same in our twisted and crooked generation. We are called and commissioned to shine the light of Christ so that all can see. Moving back to the psalm, the Lord is my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. When you read this verse, it is possible to read it wrongly. If you read this verse as the following, the Lord is light, the Lord is salvation, and the Lord is stronghold, then you have missed the point of the verse entirely. God is obviously all of these three things. However, unless we include the word my in that sentence, the verse is simply a theological statement with no application for our lives whatsoever. The verse says, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation, and the Lord the stronghold of my life. In this passage, David is not saying that out there somewhere in the distance, there is a God who is light, salvation, and stronghold far from it. He is saying that this mighty, powerful God is a God of intimacy, a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. A God who through his glorious grace has redeemed us and seeks out relationship with us. 
However, having a right understanding of who God is, who God is, is so important. Paul Tripp's, Tripp talks about this in terms of our theology, which means our understanding of who God is. That's simply what that word theology means, the understanding of who God is. He says the following, good theology doesn't just define who God is. Good theology redefines who you are as a child of God. Good theology doesn't just define who God is. Good theology redefines who you are as a child of God. He goes further by saying, you don't get your identity from your friends. You don't get your identity from your experiences. You don't get your identity from your performance. You don't get your identity from your possessions. You don't get your identity from your health. You do, however, get your identity from your theology, from what it tells you about who God is and therefore the glory of who you are as one of his children. What it tells you about who God is and therefore the glory of who you are as one of his children. Your understanding of who God is cannot remain abstract and distant. It has to look inwards. It has to redefine our very existence, our identity. And the amazing reality is that because of Jesus, we are connected to his grace, his promises, and his security. However, if we are all being truthful, this reality isn't always reflected in our day-to-day lives. We all have excuses for why we do not spend enough time engaging with God. I know I create lots of them. Peter helpfully talked about this last week with us, if you're here. We need to be drawing near to the throne of God constantly in our lives. We cannot be relying on an hour or so on a Sunday morning to sustain our relationship with our God. So I challenge you this morning to be real and truthful with yourselves. How is your relationship with God this morning? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of John's favorites, quoted, uh, said, said the following, I know of nothing in spiritual life more discouraging than to meet the kind of person who seems to be giving the impression that he or she is always walking on the mountaintop. Let me repeat that. I know of nothing in spiritual life more discouraging than to meet the kind of person who seems to be to give the impression that he or she is always walking on the mountaintop. This fake impression that so many of us try and project onto ourselves is simply fake and doesn't reflect the reality of life at all, does it? So I repeat the question to you. How is your relationship with God this morning? For those of us that are married, I challenge you to ask your spouse at a time when you have space and time together that question of each other. And for those that aren't married, I would encourage you to seek out an appropriately good, trustworthy, and wise friend and give them permission to ask that probing question of you. I ask the question, knowing that for me, this is such a tough question to answer. It involves a level of vulnerability and honesty that we so often try to avoid at all costs. However, we are called to confess our sins to each other. We are called to sharpen each other and we, as we strive to become more like Christ. We can't do that if we're not being honest with ourselves and more importantly, being honest with God. As this verse shares, God is our light our salvation, and our stronghold. God will help illuminate those areas in our lives that we haven't given over to him. He will assure us of our salvation within that. 
And after all, he called us to himself, knowing all the sin we had ever done and all the sin that we will do in the future. He holds us fast as he is our stronghold. He is a big enough God to be able to take our honesty. David follows verse 1 with two verses where he describes his enemies and their plans to assail him. He says that uh, they are to eat his flesh and camp against him and to make war against him. And the reality for David uh, is that these threats are very real to him. His enemies are closing in on him. And by saying that they want to devour his flesh, he is describing them as really wild animals, not reasonable people, but people who have the bit between their teeth ready to destroy him, to slander him and him if they get the opportunity. David is surrounded by immense danger. And yet in the middle of this danger, he says these wonderful few words, my heart shall not fear. I find it interesting that he includes this in the, this phrase in the middle of this section. Not at the start, not at the middle, or not at the end, but in the middle. In the middle of all the terrible things that are pitted against him. His gaze, whilst aware of all these dangers, is focused securely on God, his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. It has echoes of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus was all alone on his walk up to the hill where he was to be crucified, abandoned by his earthly, closest earthly friends, tortured by those who did not understand. Yet his heart did not fear, and he was confident even when he was surrounded by the enemies, his enemies. There are a lot of examples in the New Testament of apostles who endured incredible suffering who were undoubtedly in fear of their lives, no more so than the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Paul suffered abundantly in Christ's suffering, yet was comforted also abundantly by God. N.T. Wright describes it this way. Paul's deep experience of pain and sorrow has led him to a new vision of God. And that vision, shaped by the Messiah, is a vision of light and love. Light enough to see how to move forward from tragedy to glory. Love enough to know that one is held in the divine embrace which will not only comfort in the present, but remain faithful and victorious into the future. I talked earlier about these moments in our lives when fear grips us, and it feels like fear is all-consuming. And I know so many of you have walked a very dark road at times when suffering, pain, and grief have loomed extremely large over your lives and the lives of your families, almost to the point of suffocation. And it could be said that suffering will either deepen our faith and our rest in God, or it will weaken it. In these moments of suffering, there's a temptation to doubt God. This is a very normal response. However, we need to be careful in these moments. These are moments where we really wrestle with God. And David really exemplifies this in the Psalms so many times 
where he wrestles with the mystery of why God allows certain things to happen. He can't get his head around God's way sometimes. And it is right and healthy to do this, I think, to allow ourselves to be fully vulnerable to a holy God, allowing him to be our stronghold. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And it's okay to have that tension, that wrestle. The other way we can respond, however, in these moments is to doubt God's character. If we are not careful, we can allow our circumstances and our experiences form how we interpret who we think God is instead of letting who God says he is help us to interpret the situation we find ourselves facing. I'm just going to repeat that. We can allow our circumstances and our experiences form how we interpret who we think God is instead of letting who God says he is help us to interpret the situation we find ourselves facing. Do you follow what I mean by this? We can never let our understanding of who God is be formed by the moments of extreme pain and suffering and fear. Instead, we need to run to the Bible and allow God to help us rely on him by reminding us of his words, his gospel, his identity that we can rely on. God, even in, his, in this world of turbulence and injustice, is king, is the Lord of lords, and he is in control. These moments in our lives are the testing grounds of our faith quite often. And we have a choice to make. Do we rely on God, or do we choose to redefine God? I have to issue a word of caution here, though, as there is a danger that needs to be addressed. You might think to yourself that it is okay to question the character of God, especially in these times of suffering, doubt, or fear. But this line of thought can lead to disastrous consequences. Let me play out the scenario briefly for you. You start to entertain the thought that God, in fact, might not be good. He might not be caring. He might not be faithful. And where does that lead? Well, your trust will be weakened, obviously as a result of this, and you will stop running to him when you need him the most. In fact, you'll actively run away from him because who goes to somebody they do not trust whenever they're in a time of need? As a result of this, you will not pray as much, maybe not read your Bible as much or at all, and maybe stop meeting with your connect group or small group, and then maybe not make it out to Sunday morning from time to time, eventually leading to not coming out to Sunday worship at all. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? But you can see how it can so easily happen, even without us realizing it. It happens whenever we take our gaze off the one true God who doesn't change, who is our stronghold. Throughout everything that David was going through, he had supreme confidence in his God. Moving on to David's desire, David desiring God and seeking his face. We'll start off in verse 4 and 4 to 6. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will, make, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
Now, if I was to put myself into David's shoes in this situation, I think my prayer would look somewhat different to his. I think I would read something like, one thing have I, have I asked of the Lord that I may seek deliverance from my enemies. Get me out of here as quickly as I can, please. I am scared. I, I think I would be begging God to remove me from the situation and deliver me somewhere safe. David, however, does ask, does ask God for deliverance, but a whole different type of deliverance from what is described there. David realizes that the only deliverance that matters is that which draws him near to the presence of God. David has certainty that God is light, salvation uh, is light, his salvation and his stronghold. So what better place to be for him than the place where the presence of God dwelt? David wants his fear to drive him to a deeper experience of the Lord himself, both in his, his time of trouble and forevermore thereafter. Whenever I was preparing for this sermon, I spent obviously some time thinking about this verse, and I realized that when I was, whenever I was younger, I probably read this verse all wrong. I used to miss out a critical line when absorbing this passage. I think I got carried away a little bit and caught up in the majesty of being in God's presence. Um, that uh, my mind would immediately go to the resurrected self on the new earth and how amazing it would be to, to be in God's presence always, to, to walk and converse with him just as Adam had. Maybe I'm not alone in that. However, David is not talking about that at all. He says in verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. All the days of my life. He is talking here about his earthly life. He craves the presence of God here and now. He knows that God is not a God that will reveal himself to us solely whenever we die on this earth and are raised to new life. Now, as a former Baptist, I'm going to do something quite unusual here. I'm going to quote the Presbyterian favorite, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, just a little bit of it anyway. The, the, one of the questions it poses is, what is the chief end of man? And of course, a lot of you would know this, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. In this psalm, David says, one thing I have asked which is past tense, that I will seek present tense. David knows the importance of living, of a living, breathing, intimate, enjoyable relationship with God. Not a distant relationship that extends to a Sunday morning worship service and not much else, but a relationship that is intimate, that involves sacrifice, that involves intentionality, that involves space to both bring your burdens to the Lord and be ministered to him through the work of the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 145, verse 5, David declares, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous work, I will meditate. He is enjoying God. Now, I know we all live busy lives, and I know, as I said earlier, that Pete challenged us on this last week, the importance of committing time to be with God on a regular basis. However, I don't think this point can be underplayed. And I know I am speaking directly to myself here. I know that I need to take this seriously. I need, to, I need my source of joy and strength and wisdom to be coming from one place, and that one place alone that has to be from a living relationship with my maker. Sam Storms puts it this way. Nothing brings 
greater peace to the troubled soul than meditating on the majesty of God. Nothing puts life and its competing pleasures in great spiritual perspective than a knowledge of the surpassing greatness of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing empowers the will to make hard choices, often painful choices, to forgo the passing pleasures of sin than does a view of the superior reward of knowing and savoring and relishing the splendor of God. Isn't that a wake-up call? The follow-up question that my practical mind always goes to is, how do I practically put this into to practice? How do I ensure that my relationship with God is the principle in my life? How do I ensure that whenever temptation comes my way or life unexpectedly becomes extremely tough, that the one and only voice I listen to is that of God? And this is something that you need to work out for yourself. And it will change throughout the seasons of life also. However, I do want to give you a few examples gleaned by a few of the members here in Cornerstone that I have got over the last while. I was talking to Pete, who preached last week uh, after his sermon, uh, and he shared with me a story which I wanted to share with you. Um, He knew an older gentleman that he knew, and this gentleman, when mowing the lawn, would listen to the psalms being sung. Year after year, he listened. He listened and sang the psalms so many times that he could sing the psalms by heart. He had created a holy habit over the years for himself that allowed him to draw strength from the psalms in years to come. Another example uh, is one that that was shared with me by one of the men in the church. Here's a phrase he likes to use, and I have to caveat it. It's not what it initially means. Uh, he says it's important to beat the kids up. And he knew he doesn't mean to cause any physical or any harm whatsoever to your kids. He means it's important to get up out of bed before your kids in the morning and spend time with God. Make sure your alarm is going off before theirs. Prepare for your day by spending time in the holy presence of God before the madness of family life consumes you. Now, as a father of a three-year-old and a five-year-old and one to come, I know how tough that is. That's a challenge, but we all have to make sure that it is a priority for us. We need to understand and take a hard look at our lives and see how we can graft these holy habits into our lives so that our strength is being drawn from Christ and Christ alone. Paul Tripp uses a simple phrase. He talks about the need for vertical rest. Rest that enables us to remember who God is, remember what he has done for us, and remember who we are as a child of God. Rest that reorientates us back to having our identity fully rooted in God. Vertical rest. This psalm wasn't written by a man who was out of touch with the real world. And as we talked about earlier, David had a hostile army army encamped against him. David is faced with mortal fears for for his life. And so often, fear, despair, or trials don't simply go away the first time that you address them. And so we see in verses 7 to 12 that David's early confidence turns to anxiety once more. And in response, we see him direct his anxieties once more upon the Lord in prayer. Verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, your face Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face, face from me. 
Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. In these verses, in response to the returning fear that he is experiencing, David seeks the face of the Lord by coming before him in heartfelt and earnest prayer. He pleads to God for mercy and deliverance. In the process, reminding himself of the promises that God has made to him, he can really get, you can really get a sense of the depth of relationship that David has with God in this prayer. You have said, seek my face, David declares to God, and so my heart says, your face do I seek. Throughout the Psalms, David exemplifies to us what it looks like to talk to God in a way that is honest and truthful, in a way that God desires from us. Why do we hold back from God? Why do we so often put a mask on when we pray to him and just go through the pleasantries? Why, when we spend time in his presence, do we sometimes welcome distraction? I would suggest that it could be a real pride issue for us. We have grown insular, too comfortable in, our, in providing for ourselves and being self-sufficient. We enjoy the feeling of providing for ourselves and protecting the many kingdoms that we perceive that we have created for ourselves. However, we need to understand that it's a false state of existence and it's a trap that the devil loves to catch us in. We need God. We cannot rely on our own graft and toil. It is pure vanity and will lead us to destruction. We need God to be at the center of everything we do. And for that to be the case, we need to come to him with absolute honesty. God knows everything about us. That is true. However, we need to be open with him and come before him with the posture of openness that reflects an understanding of our own sinfulness and therefore an understanding of our complete reliance on him and his grace. With David crying out to the Lord, we find him reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the past, which gives, us, gives him even more confidence in God's ability to bring deliverance to him in the future. His assurance isn't just based on information passed down through Scripture. He has first-hand experience of how God has delivered him in the past. O you who have been my help, he says in verse 9. With this confidence, he can make bold requests in the presence of God, knowing that God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful according to his word. Moving on to verses 13, 14, David waits for God. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David's declaration in verse 13 is powerful, isn't it? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David is all too well, too well aware of how broken the world is. He has witnessed it. He has been targeted as a result of it. And as his story continues, we can see how he plays a part in the brokenness through his own sin. Despite all of that, again, we find his eyes are fixed on God. 
so much so that he declares that he will look upon the goodness of God in the land of the living. Whether David is declaring that he believes that God will deliver him from his earthly enemies or that his eternal future is assured is unclear. What is clear, however, is that David was fully reliant on God and has entrusted his life to God, whether that be in life or death. God's light was shining brightly for David, and he is able to see that nothing could separate him from his God. David finishes this psalm by reminding us to wait for the Lord. He's asking us to strengthen our hearts on the word of God so we might stand fast through all the storms that are to come. By how this verse is formed, it looks as if David is speaking to himself here as the verbs are in the singular. David is exemplifying to us the need to affirm within ourselves the need to spend time with God, to be quiet in his presence, to draw strength from the only true wellspring of life. He is calling us to simply wait, wait in prayer. But not just that, this psalm teaches us that we are to call upon God and share our hearts groaning to him, tell him about our pain and plead his promise of aid. Wait for the Lord. This psalm is such a helpful blueprint for us when it comes to how we should approach our God whenever life gets tough and we don't know how we are going to face the day ahead. The psalm doesn't just shy away from the sufferings or fear that we face. Instead, we can draw hope from knowing that David was experiencing extreme fear and anxiety. His life was falling apart before his eyes, and yet his eyes were fixed on God. He didn't ignore his horrendous situation. He didn't bury his head in the sand. He knew the extent of the dire situation he was in, and he brought it all to the Lord knowing that God was in control, knowing that God desired for David to come to him with honesty and sincerity. David had confidence in his God because he knew his God. He reminded him constantly of God's faithfulness to him. He sought out a right understanding of the character of God. God, he is your light, your salvation, and your stronghold. If you accept his call to pick up your cross and follow him. I'm just going to finish today with saying a prayer by Charles Spurgeon. So the language is less familiar to us, but the words are just so powerful that I couldn't pass it by. So would you bow your heads for me as I pray for us? Now, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. I know not what to do, I am brought to extremities, but I will wait until thou shalt cleave the floods or drive back my foes. I will wait if thou keep me many a day, for my heart is fixed upon thee alone, O God, and my spirit waiteth for thee in the full conviction that thou wilt yet be my joy and my salvation, my refuge and my strong tower. Amen. Thanks, John. Um, A lot to take in this morning, and uh, we want to continue on.